Hollywood doesn't particularly like controversy. They are, after all, in the business of making money. And usually, the best way to do that is to make their audiences feel not angry, confused, or conflicted, but, well, good. Every once in a while, however, Hollywood has the courage to tackle a difficult subject, and perhaps no topic in the United States is more explosive than race. Mississippi Burning, directed by Alan Parker, and starring Gene Hackman, Willem Dafoe, Brad Dereef, and the amazing Francis McDormand, takes an unflinching, frightening, and very personal look at the fictionalized murder of three civil rights activists in the heart of the segregated South. Now, this is obviously a difficult and complicated topic, made more explosive by the fact that the controversy surrounding the film is almost as contentious as the issues addressed in the film itself. As always on The Cinephiles, we don't ever want to shy away from difficult topics, and we couldn't have asked for a better partner on this exploration than screenwriter David McKenna, who has made a career taking unflinching looks at controversial topics in films such as Blow and the groundbreaking American History X. Now, this is a fantastic conversation, and we were incredibly honored to have David on the show. So if you haven't seen this film, we highly recommend a visit to our website, cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream Mississippi Burning, along with every other film we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now, you could be listening to a cinephile short on show-stealing supporting actors, including Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday from Tombstone. And one more thing. Now, you might have noticed that the year 2020 is coming to an end, thank God. Which means a whole new year of movies has opened up for our discussion. So if you want to tell us what film from 2011 we should cover first, you need to go to www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash vqhxmx5. That's surveymonkey.com slash r slash vqhxmx5. And fill out our latest listener survey. Don't worry, you can find the link in the show notes. So, that's our 2020 listener survey on surveymonkey.com slash r slash vqhxmx5, a short on supporting actors on Patreon, and part one of Mississippi Burning with special guest David McKenna this Friday on The Cinephiles. There's a telephone back at the truck stop. Get to it, get on it, and get me a hundred more men here by morning. A hundred? A hundred. What, bureau people, sir? I don't care if it's a goddamn army. I want this entire swamp searched. Yes, sir. Don't do it, Mr. Ward. Let's start a war. It was a war long before we got here. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host over on The Outlaw Nation and co-host of this show and voiceover guy uh, and a lover of fight movies. So I'm excited uh, for our guest today, Steve, for sure, and to talk about this very um, difficult movie from our past that still resonates today my man 
Yeah, I'm, we're very, very happy to welcome David McKenna. He's the writer of American History X, which is a fantastic and powerful movie and a, a difficult one as well, like the one we're talking yeah. about today. He also wrote Blow, Get Carter. He's the executive producer and creator of E-Ring on NBC. And right now he's got a film that's in all of the digital mediums. You'd want to get it on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, Vudu, and that is Embattled, starring Stephen Dorff. David, welcome to The Cinephiles. Oh, it's great to be here, Steve and John. I can be happier. So, so uh, tell us a little bit about Embattled, and in particular, how was working with Stephen Dorothy? This was um, just an idea came to me on about two pages um, of a father fighting a son, mm. and I had always wanted to do that great father son battle, and because I was a huge. A huge fan. I mean, Duvall's my favorite actor, mm, and sure. uh, and the great Santini. Oh yeah. Um, obviously, it, I mean, the movie is 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 a classic, and um, and then I thought, okay, what could be bigger than a father fighting his son? You know, that is the ultimate in father son <laughs> movies, and and the question became, how do you sell it? You know, how do you write it so people aren't rolling their eyes and um, I think I achieved that, obviously, because we got it financed and we got it made. Yeah. Um, and then to your to your other question regarding Stephen Dorff, you know, I mean, Stephen has been just a journeyman actor, a legend for many years, but it's like he never had that great role to catapult him into the stratosphere that he deserved. And I think that, it, you know, it, you know, I mean, everybody knows him from Blade, but he was a supporting actor in Blade right. and The Power of One, obviously. But then when he read for this and you listen to his voice, I go, my God, that, that's Cash Boykins. That's the guy. Mm. And he, you know, he was coming off True Detective, which, John, you mentioned earlier, oh. he's kind of having a, a, a sort of a renaissance period. Yeah. And, um and he really does kill it in this movie. I mean, he really does. I'm not liking it to Jake LaMotta, trust me. But if, <laughs> but if there could be sort of this Jake LaMotta performance inside Steven, he certainly got it. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think Steven deserves an Oscar nomination for it. I haven't seen a better performance this year. Um, yeah. Granted, well, I mean, there's, granted, there's not a whole lot of performances, but you know, <laughs> I mean, but he he's certainly worthy of it for sure. Yeah, like like yeah, like you mentioned, I we mentioned off camera before we started. Like you're you're catching him at a time when he's going through a bit of a career renaissance now, a reappreciation. You know this, David, Steve. You know this as well. We've been around long enough to see people who kind of burst out of the scene, and everybody loves them, and then they kind of recede into the background for a while and kind of age into the older man parts. And now here's Stephen Dorff. I mean, I think Deputy was the name of that show that was on yeah. Fox that he did. Um, yeah. And then, like you said, the, the True Detective stuff, which was incredible with him and Maharsha Ali, Oscar winner Maharsha Ali going toe-to-toe throughout that whole series. And now you're catching him in here. You know, he's such an eclectic actor. I remember him as Stuart Sutcliffe in Backbeat, that Beatles right. film. That's yeah. right. And, and I shot Andy Warhol and so many of these interesting films that he's done throughout his life, done the horror, he's, done, he's occasionally done a comedy, he's done these other like more independent films so it must have when you when he did he like come to you did it agents pitch you or did you kind of just kind of want him and then eventually got him into the room and knew you'd pick the right guy 
Well, you know, to get financing, obviously you want to get uh, an actor who's kind of, uh, you know, these big giant actors to do these small films. And they're just right. not, and it's just not a really practical way of thinking nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when Steven wanted to do it and uh, Nick wanted him, uh, the director, then yeah. we, then we really just, it was one of those cases where we just casted the most perfect guy for the part. Yeah. And, you know, and Steven just nails it. And, and you know, he's got that voice from all yeah. the cigarettes that he smokes. Right. And, um, yeah. and, uh, um, and it's another thing that I love about it is he's playing a dad mm-hmm. and there rarely do we see these great actors nowadays playing these dads of teenagers. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very weird. So it's, it's, so it's very refreshing to see a father son movie in that context because you just don't see these guys with kids and it's just, and, and I miss those films. I miss yeah. those films. And, and, you're, and they're fighting each other in an MMA ring. So this is almost has shades of warrior to it as well in that the warrior, they were brothers. This is father, son. And of course we have LeBron now extending his contract out with the Lakers, hoping that his son gets selected by the Lakers so he can play with his son in the NBA. <laughs> so it's very interesting how these father sons work in the things work in the sports world for sure. Yeah. Um, with warrior, you know, I mean, I thought I, I liked warrior a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Another thing with embattled is my son's in it. Oh wow. Oh wow. I wrote a part I wrote a part for my son. I have a special needs son and he plays uh, the little brother. Huh. So I wanted to make things a little bit um Jet is played by Darren Mann and Darren Mann is such a stud. Mm-hmm. And um I mean he carries the movie and and so I wanted to give that of mice and men element uh to right. the story to make things more difficult on the protagonist and yeah. and uh you know it works really well and, and so i knew it I, I i mean i knew having this my son has this thing called williams syndrome it's a genetic disorder okay. and um and i have an older son and so i could so it really helped writing what you know in this case sure. mm. and uh, i'm very proud of my son and think about that you know i not too many screenwriters get to work with their sons in the movie and so that was really special too but take that out of it you know people love it and if you can if you read some of the the comments on amazon and you read uh i think we've got a 4.6 on amazon out of five stars with upwards of 150 custom reviews um we did something right and uh and i really hope that uh I'm just trying to get the word out. You know, yeah. the key is now is to get the word out in this environment. Yeah. And we're starting to get overloaded with Christmas movies on some of those, <laughs> <laughs> on those lists. You know, I don't yeah. want to get lost in the shuffle. And so, well, this is, sounds like kind of an antidote to your Christmas movie. Like when you get a little <laughs> sick of all the sweetness, we can get into the ring. Uh, it, it's funny, John, John and I both love sports films. And it's yeah. amazing to me how often fathers and sons play whether it's the off-camera father and the natural mm. or meeting dad in Field of Dreams or like just, you know, and I guess it's because as dudes, we all have our dad issues. Mm. And, I, and I love that you put it right into the ring. I think that's great. Yeah, it's so true. You, you quoted the natural, man. Oh, my God, <laughs> I love it. It's a, father that, makes, a father makes all the difference. There you yeah. go. Great line. It, that that is one of the very first movies we did on this show. Yeah, it is still one of my all-time favorite sports movies. It just yeah. gets me every time. It's every out- time, 
every time it's on, I stop and I watch it. Yeah. Standard. Yeah. It's out there in 4K for anybody who wants to get it. I do want to ask one last question for I know we got to jump into the show, but like you wrote American History X when you were much younger. You're right. Then blow a little bit. And then now this film. So do you see shades of yourself? Like, are you part of the dad in this where you were the young, you know, kind of cocky kid in American history? I'm not saying you're white supremacist, but like cocky kid in, <laughs> in, in American history X. And maybe you were feeling the riches in blow of yourself a little bit. And then now here as a dad older with your sons, are there elements of these of yourself in each of these characters uh, as you write them in, in these uh, in these screenplays. Absolutely. You know, taken to the extreme, of course, with American History X, you know, no, not at all. But I right. saw the opportunity to create um, uh, a skinhead. And I, I had seen some skinheads uh, in San Diego and Huntington Beach. Um, and uh, so, but I love that op you see that great character and then mm -hmm. you take it to the extreme for the purpose of the movie. Right. And, um, that's where it works. Now with my new character cash, uh, with Steven, you know, he's a fairly repulsive character, mm -hmm. but, um, there are some things that, you know, he, and he is the villain and he's a mm -hmm. bigger villain than, uh, Edward's character in American history X right. because, with Edward's character, you're actually rooting for him in the end. And that, and that was such the, that, that big giant character arc was such a, was such a huge um, uh, endeavor for me to take on yeah, with okay. Cash, you know, he, he's pretty bad throughout, but, you, but there are elements of him that are quite endearing in my opinion. Now, some people online won't agree with me, mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, there's some things that I think Cash did uh, that he believed in fervently and, that deep in a lot of dad souls, we have a little trace of that in us mm -hmm. as well. And so that's yeah. about hitting the head on it as much as I can, you know, yeah. to answer your question. Sure. Cool. Um, but we, as much as we love sports movies and father son movies, we are not here to talk about a sports movie today. <laughs> you know, we, we asked you what films you would be interested in uh, talking about. You send us a list. Strangely enough, we'd already done a bunch of those movies, but the movie that jumped out at both John and I, immediately is Mississippi Burning, um, which is interesting because we just did our first Alan Parker movie just a, a month ago, The Commitments, yeah. and now we're yeah. doing Mississippi Burning, which is a very, very different film. Obviously, this is a special film to you, David. I'm really curious. How did you first come to this movie? Well, I was a sophomore in college, and um, I was a business major at San Diego State, and I hated it. And yeah. I'd always been sort of a good writer, but, you know, I wasn't familiar with screenwriting or anything of that magnitude. And I had seen, I saw Platoon a couple of years earlier and, and it, that really affected me. Um, and then um, when I was 19 or 20 years old, I saw Mississippi Burning in the theater and it really moved me. It really got me. And I wanted to know more about that. It was the first time where I really wanted to know more about movies and wonder how that got made. And that was kind of a, a, a catapult for me to begin my career screenwriting because I really started, uh, uh, there was a guy I knew in college that got accused of a rape and uh, I had just seen the accused. The accused I think was out the same year as Mississippi wow. burning. Yeah. And so 
th- these, these collection of movies in 1988 really sort of uh, got me out of a, being a business major. And uh, well, I actually finished being a business major, but I started writing screenplays while I was in college. And a lot of it was due to this movie that I saw that just really wow. absolutely blew me away. It's so weird because uh, our, our stories parallel each other so much. First of all, it sounds like you and I are pretty much exactly the same age. I was a sophomore in college in 1988. Yeah. And yep. Uh, this film, I, there was a, I had a real awakening sort of mid-college. You know, grew up in a pretty white suburban neighborhood. And this film, along with Do the Right Thing and School Days, like opened up my head. And yep. so I was a theater major, and but really was studying to be a director. And that's when I started writing. And the first play that I wrote and directed at Cal, uh, I developed with a African-American playwright. And we developed a film about race relations on the Berkeley campus. And that, you know, okay. and race became a thing that I wrote about a ton in the early late 80s, early 90s. And, so, and it really came from getting my head exploded by a bunch of films right at this era. Uh, John, how about you? How'd you come to it? Yeah, I, I, I was not a sophomore in college, but I was just a little bit behind <laughs> you guys. But I did. I, I was on the other coast uh, than uh, the both of you, and watching it in the theater. I mean, I race has been an essential part of my life since I was born. I mean, because my parents are immigrants from uh, Bolivia and South America, so for me, race has been a, a very uh, at the forefront of my mind uh, as long as I can remember being aware of. Uh, the racism in this country, being aware of the civil rights uh, movement, being a John Kennedy. My parents would love John Kennedy, so that was in my head as well as a 10-year-old, 12-year-old. So through, And then reading the autobiography of Malcolm X in high school. So for me, race relations was a very important part of who I am as a person and who I was developing. And so when I saw this trailer, I just I knew I had to see it. Plus, being a massive Hackman fan, uh, just, just getting into uh, Willem Dafoe. So for me, a lot of... And Francis McDormand, obviously, uh, you know, all these connective tissues throughout. And I just remember sitting in that theater, gripping my armrest through that whole movie at the anger of what I was seeing. And yet, and this is incredible, when you watch this movie and step out of it, that's just a very, very small, tiny window of what was actually happening on such a massive scale in a number of the states. And not just in the South, in other areas too, but certainly that was an important time where civil rights had it took this kind of madness to occur for people to finally wake up and see what was happening to a lot of black men and women and to their children in this country and that film i went back and saw it over and over and over again because it was very seminal in that and i didn't of course i didn't become a screenwriter or anything like that i was an influence that way but it was more about it it was the fact that it talked about race relations in such a honestly brutal way and didn't pull any punches uh, and a lot is in here, you know, um, the, the the beating of the wife, the uh, the the, uh, the brutal uh, use of the N word, the brutal use of uh, the uh, connective tissue of the you know the things they call NAACP. All of that was there for you to see. There's no punches being pulled in this film, and I, I thought it was so important for that reason. Well, and 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 as you said, since we say there are really no punches being pulled in this film, I just. You know, this is a film that deals with race. It is a film that uses language that I certainly am very uncomfortable with. It is a film that is controversial and difficult. And in fact, it has its own controversy into itself that we'll also discuss. So, you know, I just want to, you know, put the warning out that we're going to get into some stuff in this episode. And as always on The Cinephiles, John and I, you know, and obviously you, David, I I don't want to shy away from this. You know, Mm. 
I want to get into it, and so we're going to discuss some things. Um, uh, uh, just a tiny bit of pre-production. This uh, started with a script from Chris, Chris Garolmo. Garolmo, I don't know how to say his last name, and I'm probably doing it poorly. Um, uh, but uh, he brought the script to Orion. Orion went out and looked at a couple of directors, but centered fairly quickly on Alan Parker. And Alan Parker had some real conflicts with Chris uh, Garolmo. Um, and it sounded like they didn't get along. And Orion gave Parker the opportunity to do some uncredited rewrites. And what degree... He did rewrites, and what degree he didn't is hard to say. There's some specific things I know that were changed. But the big thing, and I think this relates to what is going to become the controversy around the film, is that Parker wanted to bring it more to the real story, which is based on the Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman murders in 1964 in Mississippi. And Orion wanted it to be fiction. And so the tension between how much of this is based on real events and how much of this is fiction is really central both to the film and then also the controversy that erupts around the film. Um, that's, that's so fascinating, Steve, because they never say the kids' names in that movie, in, in Mississippi Burning. They never say the kids' names, maybe for that reason, to try to abstractly keep it somewhat sort of fiction for people who may not be aware of the history behind this situation. Wow. I read a little bit about that as well, Steve, and I think that there's always that conflict that goes on between writer and director in, in so many of these instances. You know, I, I bet Chris wanted to keep it as close to the truth as possible. So my understanding is the opposite. Chris wrote a fiction thing. Orion liked it fiction. Alan Parker was the one who kept trying to bring it back closer to oh, the reality. Okay. That's okay. my understanding. But I, 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 but also some of that is coming from Alan Parker. So you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going to let. Uh, I don't know that I don't know the ins and outs of that. I mean, I can pull back the curtain on my experience doing seven movies and just uh, in in you know the fighting and the the back and forth that goes along with that. Um, I, I mean, I'd, lo I'd love to hear you elaborate more on it, but um, Alan Parker, I mean, I heard you guys yeah. talk about him on the commitments. I mean, the craftsmanship and the authenticity that he brings on this movie, um, you know, I mean, that is uh, what really stood out to me, it, it, you know, as far as this, this movie is concerned more than anything else. Isn't that amazing how he's one, he's one of those directors that just gets lost uh, in the, it, sometimes from people when they're talking about the great directors. Like Brian De Palma gets mentioned more than Alan Parker. And you could argue that a lot of Alan Parker's film can films can stand up to De Palma's films and also the masterful way he does or works within different genres effectively. You know, people want to give people to forget about Angel Heart. That's like damn good movie at the time that is unsettling as hell that Alan that Parker movie did freaked well. me out yeah right <laughs> I mean the De Niro is the devil was so perfect and Mickey Rourke and the voodoo stuff and there was all kinds of controversy around that too so there was so much of, and then you may juxtapose this film that is so authentically uh, uh, where it's set in Mississippi and counter it and, and put in, and look at the commitments that is so authentically where it's set uh, yeah. in Ireland and you're just like this is this is a master director who understands how to bring you into the world so effectively and so viscerally uh, so that you feel every emotional beat throughout his movie. And Midnight Express, too, John. Yes. Woo. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the late great Brad Davis. Yep. Uh, they went forward with the script. It sounds like Hackman was at the top of the list from the beginning. 
And I mean, what he's one of my all time favorite actors. He's just nobody who brings it in quite the way that Hackman uh, does. Uh, Defoe had just come off of Last Temptation of Christ, and he really wanted this. And there was some sound like Orion had some other people in mind. And Alan Parker did a did a screen test with him and said, "No, no, this is the guy." And it's interesting too seeing him play this totally straight laced role, <laughs> considering where William Defoe gets pegged later on in his career. Right, right. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I mean, just the, I mean, the, the casting is, is, is perfect. It, these unlikely partners, you know, to have Defoe go completely against typecast and play the straight laced by the book bureau procedure, Mr. Anderson uh, cop. And, and then Hackman play, you know, well, Hackman always is kind of the wild card, you know, <laughs> I mean, just the dynamic between those two are just, it's, it's, it's the best, it's the best cop dynamic that I've ever watched on, on film. And people might argue, but I'll give a better argument back. And then to have Francis <laughs> and then to have Francis McDormand right there, I mean, coming out of nowhere. Right. Uh, right. just and then think about like Brad Dorif, the yeah. uh, the I mean from uh, 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 One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it just goes to show you there are no small parts. I mean, and Michael Rooker, and I mean, we could go on and on and on about the perfection of the casting in this movie. Yeah. You know, my, my favorite movie of all time is Ordinary People, which is another, oh. you know, I mean, you, you think about this is right up there, though. That, um, that was that was the when you sent us your list. That was the other one I was looking at. I haven't watched it in forever. Ordinary yeah. People completely destroyed me. It is, yeah. it is that is a lot of a movie. But Great just films. as far as just as far as Steve is casting. I mean, yeah. that is that is everything. And uh, the acting is everything. Well, and speaking of casting, it's Juliet Taylor as the casting director. I mean, she's one of the great casting directors of all time. You know, that's and this is one of the keys to film. Um, one of the interesting things, just one more pre-production thing, is they uh, Parker looked for locations all over the South. And the one place he was reluctant to shoot in was Mississippi because he just felt they wouldn't be welcoming and finally, they called, you know basically said, "Why aren't you coming to shoot here?" And the governor <laughs> even called Parker and said, "No, no, come shoot in Mississippi." And and so and so that's where they most of it was shot around Jackson, Mississippi. Wow. Um, started shooting in March of uh, 1988 with a budget of 15 million dollars. And uh, would you like to get into Mississippi burning? Let's do it. Yes. So I think the opening shot of this movie is so amazing and so simple, which is just two drinking fountains, white drinking mm -hmm. fountain and the colored drinking fountain. Yeah. It, it hit me so hard looking at this film this time, this shot, mm -hmm. and the difference between the fountains and how that there could be a time where we thought that was fine. That was what normal. do you mean? You speak about it as if it's in the past. There are, and I think that's watching this film now this time, Steve, this film is 30 years old, over 30 years old, yet some of these attitudes, some of these ideas, some of these uh, points of views about black and white or about people of color and white have become more, uh, have re been reborn again yep. over the last three or four years as we've seen these marches and these these terrible things being yelled by these people in these marches. So as much as that may feel distant it's still relevant today, sadly so. And that, it hit me this time watching it. Like, we think this is in the past. This is happening. This would happen right now if certain people were in control for longer. So many of these images, Steve, that you brought up, uh, you know, like 
they do they almost they do a lynching they do a yep. lynching yeah, yeah, yeah. and and um just the murders of the guys in the beginning with the lights off and just imagine the fear that was going on inside those guys heads right after that opening shot of them being harassed and pulled over but i mean um you know the production design you know with the swamp do you remember in the trailer where you saw these guys in suits walking through a swamp <laughs> you know i mean was that just the most That's insanely crazy. great image uh for a, a tra- i go oh my god i want to see that yes. you know right off the bat i mean th- there's just so many of those images going on so, so th- the thing that hit me so hard this time was so this movie was made in 88 about a time of 64 and so i went oh the time that the the setting is set four years before i was born and it's 24 years earlier than when the movie comes out so 24 years earlier than now is 1996 that's the distance between the time that this happened and the time that the movie was made. <laughs> crazy, it is crazy. It is, it yeah. is, it, you know. And so, to to your point, John, and your point, David, this is not ancient history at all. Yeah. You know, um, and I, Sadly. you know, we'll certainly talk about some of the things that are still certainly relevant today. And we go from that yeah. image of the segregated drinking fountains to the image of a church burning down, and they actually burnt a lot of real churches down, abandoned ones mm-hmm. in the south. Um, this was originally supposed to be in the montage in the middle of the film, but they moved it to the beginning of the film, and it's such such a powerful image. Um, and then we go to a third opening. I think all three of these moments could be the opening of any great film. <laughs> Drinking exactly fountains, that. the burning of the church, and then this unbelievable image of these this car going over these hills. They yeah. shot it over three nights at magic hour, which means that brief time right when the sun is going down. And the way the car goes over those hills is just a stunningly beautiful moment. The cinematographer is Peter Bijou. This is a guy Alan Parker worked with over and over and over again. He's insane. He's yeah. insane. Uh, uh, it, it looks unbelievable. And we're in with these three civil rights guys, two white guys and a African-American guy in the back seat. And this is, you know, what's modeled after James Cheney, Andrew Goodman and Michael Schorner, who were down in the South during what was called Freedom Summer. These guys were, in the real story, were arrested, uh, held for seven hours, then released, and then they disappeared. Um, And they're driving, and then they see cars coming up behind them. The cars come up fast. Is it a cop? I can't see. As you say, David, the fear of this moment, it's just terrifying. Yeah. There's the one guy who's driving, and he's like, it's going to be okay, it's going to be fine. And then suddenly, you know, it's not going to be fine. He pulls the car off the road. We realize one of the cars is a cop. And even then, he's still sane. All right, we'll be all right. Just relax. And then up walks Michael Rooker. Y'all think you can drive any speed you want around here? You had us scared to death, man. Don't you call me man, Jew boy. He's terrifying in this movie. Yeah. He's amazing. He was the only one they showed. Yep. Um, And I think you hear um, the deputy sheriff Brad DeReef's character talk, you know, what do you, what do you know about this boy? You know, but the fact is, is it's a mystery. Yeah. And they set that up fairly right away. Now we all know, you know, those guys are probably guilty once we start meeting them. Um, But uh, uh, that's the great, mystery element that kind of propels the first act you know what do you think john 
I thought it was a brilliant to find the most extreme of all these people and make him the first face you see. It is the first face you see. He uses the derogatory terms in a, a very aggressive, violent way, verbally. He's, uh, he, you can tell that he sees those three guys as less than human. Uh, it's a way to show you that we are not, again, like we said earlier, there's no going to be no punches pulled, and this is the kind of evil that we are going to be confronting in this movie. This is the kind of evil that we're going to expose and be in, and our protagonists are going to have to go up against. You know, and Rooker made a living out of playing these characters in the 80s and 90s for a very long time, uh, and it's incredible to see how he's been uh, sliding, yeah. slid into the beloved uh, category now because of his work in in marvel so it's just fa- and and walking dead it's fascinating you know you stick around long enough you do great work long enough and i remember henry portrait of a serial killer oh, he was yeah. so fantastic in that so to have him play this character and the the accent that all of it just works so well and the jutting of his chin it's all there to put fear into you as the viewer so you understand what we're dealing with here right from the beginning I had a problem accepting him in JFK as a good guy. You sure. know? <laughs> well, he's so he's so intelligent. And what's so what one of the things I think is so interesting about this scene? We've seen the trailer. We know what the movie's about. We know mm. these guys are going to die, yeah. and yet it is both still terrifying and suspenseful, and ultimately unbelievably shocking. Yeah. When the murder itself happens, there's this moment when Rooker puts his face in, and you hear in the background a guy says, "He's seen your face." That ain't good. You don't want him seeing your face. Oh, it don't make no difference no more. And then that, and it happens so fast. That gut, and it's the cocky guy who's driving who thinks he can talk his way out of it, you know, thinks it's going to be okay. And that is that, you know, that is the white privilege. That is the person who (laughs) thinks he walks around with the invulnerable suit of armor that the bad stuff can't happen to him. And man, that gun goes to his head and it goes, and it is like that. And it is so shocking and so scary. Oh shit, we into it now, boys. And the and the blood splattering on them and then the words that are said in the dark is an actual uh line that was said by one of the guys in the FBI transcripts of that those three murders you were talking about. Parker used those transcripts and and littered lines from those transcripts throughout this movie. And yes, it is a fiction, right. but it is based on actual events that really happened uh during this investigation and what have you so that that n that n word lines that he's saying those are actually taken from an actual transcript i didn't so, know that that's that's interesting yeah. well and one other thing that that I, I found out is that the title mississippi burning that is the title on the fbi case file yep that's where this title comes from mm-hmm. um one thing that's interesting by the way i feel like it's come up on the show but i had to do research on it to find out is the the phrase, the N-word, this thing we say mm. in order to not say this other word, that didn't exist in 1988. If you were going to talk about that word, you had to yeah. use that word. Because I know when I was doing my play that we were discussing whether or not to include this word. And we were discussing. And what I found out is the origin of the phrase, the N-word, is Johnny Cochran in the O.J. Simpson trial. That huh. is the first public usage wow. of the phrase, the N-word. Wow. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes um, so much sense. <laughs> a lawyer would have to coin it. That yep. just makes so much sense. <laughs> well, um, I mean, back then it was Negro or col- colored, you know? Right, I mean, right, it wasn't, right. there was, it was way before African American, baby. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, it was, but uh, it was uh, the, the, with the authenticity, once again, it, it's what sells the movie and it makes us really believe that 
this is, you know, 1964 Mississippi. And I got to screen this movie for my kids. I think my kid, you know, obviously they're old enough to, you know, being 19, 17 and 14, they're, they're way old enough to see this. Mm. And I don't think many kids have nowadays. Yeah. I mean, what do you guys think? I mean, uh, I don't think the parents sit their kids down and show them Mississippi Bernie. I, I, you know, I have a nine-year-old kid, and I think he is living in a far more sheltered world than I grew up in. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's so much more catered to kids because, like, I, you know, I'm sure it's the same for all three of us. If we watched stuff, mm -hmm. we couldn't control what was on TV. There was right. just this is what there was, and so you saw yeah. all sorts of stuff. You know, I my family got Showtime in like 1982. And so I was just they weren't <laughs> around. I was just watching whatever there was to watch, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you got I mean, good stuff. You got you were 9 years old and you had Scarface on. It's exactly. great. <laughs> and I think that's what's happening nowadays. I feel like uh people have less of a desire to look in the past and and remember so they don't repeat and you see that a lot of these politicians are trying to push these agendas where they erase our racist past uh oh, yeah, from the history books uh and they're, and they're hiding behind this shield of like you know if you show it then we'll just keep repeating it but the truth is if you don't tell people about it we'll keep repeating that's the actual truth uh and they're trying to white essentially whitewash our horrible history of racism in this country that as you guys pointed out isn't that far away isn't that far away uh from our lives so yeah yeah it, it's something come over and over again on the cinephiles which is there's films that are aspirational, where we go, look at Captain America, is any great? I want to be like that. And then yeah. there are films that put the mirror up to reality and say, look, this is what we are sometimes. And yeah. I, there's space for both. Yeah. Um, so we go from this horrible murder into this car where we meet our two main characters, Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe, and immediately set up that these are very <laughs> different kinds of guys. <laughs> Particularly with Gene Hackman singing this KKK song that is... Oh, Oh my God. <laughs> never, never, never I say, for the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. Never, never, never I say, because the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. <laughs> what a character intro. I mean, does it get any better than that? It's the first thing you see of Hackman, and he sings the KKK song totally. Uh, uh, he get, he just he makes a meal out of it, you know. You know, he comes in with this cavalier attitude, and that's part of his character arc. Is he comes into this case, you know, almost like uh, a smile on his face. Mm. You know, he's smiling as he sings this song, and then right. by the end of the movie, you know, he had just been through a war, yeah. and um, and so that I mean, when you talk about the genius of now I don't know who came up with with uh, Dromo or Parker, but to meet your protagonist and have him sing right off the bat, the KKK anthem <laughs> is genius. Just read the file, Mr. Anderson. I can do without the cabaret. Uh, you don't like me much, do you, boss? Sure, I like you. I just don't share your sense of humor. Sometimes that's all you got left. Well, and we're very much in the position of Willem Dafoe's character of Agent Ward of going, well, wait, what, who is, what does this guy think? I and mean, is he going to be the enemy? You know what I mean? Is yeah. he a racist I, that I, you know, I, yeah. I don't, we don't know who he is. And we set up this conflict between them right away really beautifully because Anderson, um, Hackman's character is condescending towards Dafoe. He's like, how long have you been to Bureau? 
three years. Right out of college, huh? No, from the Justice Department. Kennedy boy, now I see. And that's one of the things that's interesting about this movie is the generational gap between the old school lawman Hackman and the new school, more buttoned up guy who we see as the Kennedy guy. And then we hear... Let's get this thing straight. I haven't had a pimple in years. I shave every morning. I even go to the bathroom by myself so you can quit this poor stuff. They put me in charge because I've been through this before. Birmingham, Montgomery? Oxford. I was with Meredith at Ole Miss. Which is the trying to enroll this guy in Ole Miss and all of the federal troops that had to go down. Got hit in the head with a brick and so they gave you a promotion, right? No. <laughs> Shot in the shoulder. By the way, I, I had to look it up. Uh, during the riots at Ole Miss, there were two people killed, 300 people injured, a third of which were federal law enforcement. So there are 100 federal law enforcement people injured in this riot. Well, at least he lived. That's important. No, Meredith lived. That's what's important. The idealist. Yep. <laughs> perfectly, perfectly oh. set up. I've seen this movie a bunch of times. I didn't know Gene Hackman's character history was that he was a sheriff in Mississippi. Yep. Mm. You know, and another thing that's cool about this is he, uh, Ward, Defoe, is Hackman's superior, you yeah. know, which is another cool thing. Well, and that's what makes me go. It's it's so, and, and David, obviously, you know, this is, is a writer, is like how we handle backstory is always an interesting thing. And what's so great about this movie is it's sort of the iceberg principle, is we have little hints that there's a lot of backstory with these people. Yeah. But we don't get to know what it is. Like, how did Hackman go from being a sheriff and ended up working for the FBI? How, right. you know, where did Ward come from? And why is Hackman under Ward, you know? Yeah. And we pull into town. Most of the town was shot, actually, in Alabama, in Lafayette, Alabama. And immediately we're getting looks from the locals. They're not pleased with these guys in suits coming in. And you could see just by, again, costumes, like defining characters, is Defoe is well put together his suit is pressed it's clean and hackman is kind of frumpy and wrinkled and you know all great stuff and we go in to see the sheriff and the first person we meet is brad Dreef. i'm with the fbi federal bureau integration <laughs> throwing shade not letting him see the sheriff once again once you meet the characters your very first image of brad Dreef, who in my opinion, should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor in this movie. I mean, uh, I saw great. the nominees, and, and he is just <laughs> amazing in this damn movie. Being the smartass, mm -hmm. these guys were not intimidated by the FBI. These guys were tight. You know, they, they had their story straight. They weren't going to budge. And that's the beauty of this movie. Uh, Hackman and Defoe had to overcome such huge odds in order to get these guys because... When you fervently believe in something that you're doing, it's amazing how well yeah. you, you can get people off of your back. You think that nobody's going to be able to turn you. Yeah. And you're together in this mission. It's almost like they were their own little unit, the, their own little soldiers. Yeah. You talk about states' rights. This is this is states' rights. You know, we are our own, even throughout the, the film and the first part of the film, that sheriff keeps saying, you know, we handle our own. This is a local problem. It's a local problem. Yep. You can't have no blood on Main Street. This is a local problem. So, you know, in their minds, they were the end all be all uh in in uh, in that in that city and in that state. And that 
has been prevalent since the Civil War. This idea that certain states really do not see themselves as, even now, how many sheriffs are like, I'm not enforcing that mask mandate. People rely on the government, but they also want to defy the government when they don't feel, and it's usually sheriffs, usually people who are in charge of their counties who are like, have become or ascended to the end all be all of that county. So they don't like to be pushed around by the feds and you see that from the beginning the fact that they're dorif can or dorif pulls off what he pulls off in that moment can you imagine anyone speaking to an fbi agent like no, that? no. that's crazy to think right? well the, i i think the thing about why uh dorif seems so comfortable and really everyone does is they're absolutely right based on everything they've experienced there is no way for them to be caught and in fact later on mm. when we see people get caught the the whole mechanism of the city and the state they are backing up the racist system we're here to see sheriff stucky sheriff's right busy now you don't have to wait and come back some other time um one thing it just just uh, uh i've been thinking david about what you're saying about brad Dereef deserving the oscar nomination i think he falls into this really weird category of people whose performances are so good they don't look like they're acting <laughs> yeah and they don't know what to do with them like the academy doesn't know what to do with them you're right because yeah. it's it's like it just seems like he's that guy it's so true and yeah. i mean what just what an actor i mean you go back to him with the stuttering problem from uh uh, oh one God. flew over the cuckoo's yeah. nest, really bad, yeah. and then and then you see him in this, and the guy is just it. It truly is just why you love the movies. I mean, what a villain! What a villain! Speaking of villains, we also get to meet the sheriff, who <laughs> is as if if Brad Dorif is arrogant in his position, the sheriff even more so. In fact, you know what I think it is? It's a publicity stunt cooked up by that Martin Luther King fella. <laughs> Fake news, in essence. Fake news, in <laughs> essence. I, I looked up good old boy, and he's the picture that I saw when I looked it up. So, <laughs> looks, like, when you say good old boy, that, that sheriff is exactly what you visualize. Absolutely. And then we're out in the town, and we're kind of going over what the facts of the case are. And uh, what Defoe is struggling with is like, well, why didn't they make a phone call? Why should they? Mr. Anderson, these boys were trained activists. They're taught to check in every hour, and if they're arrested the moment they're released from custody, the civil rights office in Rossville started making calls as soon as they didn't check in. The sheriff's office here said they had no idea where the boys were. This moment is so interesting because um, Defoe says, well, that's the first lie. By who? Sheriff's office or civil rights office? Who would you believe? And this is where we find out, David, you said that he was a sheriff. He says, Mr. Ward. I don't know if you knew it or not, but I was a sheriff in a little Mississippi town just like this. Yes, I'm aware of that, Well, Mr. lying Anderson. just don't come into it, you know? Now, if a sheriff in a little town like this says, that's what happened, then that's what happened. You're setting up Hackman's character arc. You're setting up the fact that Hackman in the beginning is indifferent to all this racism stuff. Uh, mm. he, he believes that he might not be an actual uh, racist, but what he is, is he's sort of indifferent and he understands the way they feel and you're not going to change them. So why even bother? Mm -hmm. And that's the opening of his character arc. And so he has somewhere to go. Defoe is our straight man. Yeah. Defoe is our straight right. man for the entire movie. You know, he's our idealist. You know, he pretty much is the same guy throughout the entire movie. Mm -hmm. Hackman changes. Hackman goes from this indifferent man from the South who's this has been his, his whole life yeah to a man that really gets it at the end and really sort of bonds with defoe and goes through a metamorphosis of what's going on down here is really wrong mm -hmm. 
and um, and he learns. You, you know what I think works against it a little bit is that uh, Hackman's also our expert. He's the one who understands the culture. And in fact, in the scene we're about to go into, we're going to walk into this restaurant. And there's nowhere to sit. And Defoe goes, oh, no, there's some seats right over there at the what we would call the colored counter. Right. And Hackman goes, no, 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 you can't you can't go sit there. And he takes his menu, walks over, sits down next to an African-American guy with the whole restaurant going completely quiet to stare and turns to this guy and says, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? I mean, just like the obliviousness of that to do that. Right. Because, I mean, Hackman knows how to navigate this. But then again, I think it's a great uh, scene too in this way that's the federal government they're also operating from not necessarily white privilege but federal government privilege that they think they can walk into a town not understand the layout of the town walk up into a counter sit in a, to, as if they're making some big grandiose statement that i'm a white man sitting at the black counter to show you all how wrong you are but it leads to this poor kid being dragged out of his house and beaten and left in a chicken coop and that's what hackman calls him out on because both of them have to learn. Both of them have arcs to go on to learn about this situation and themselves and in dealing with each other. And in this moment, Defoe has to. Defoe thinks he's making this grandiose statement from his arrogance and seeing the results of it, Hackman calls him out on it later on in the movie. It's, it's a just, great moment. It's, yeah, because, it is. Because he doesn't know. Right. Because he's so... But he refuses to listen too, David, right? Because like Hackman says, don't go over there. We don't go over there. He's like, screw that. I'm going over there. And that's part of Defoe's character right. as he comes in as a know-it-all. Yep. You know, yeah, yeah. and then he learns through the course of this investigation. You remember the great line later, I'm sure you're going to get to it, is mm. this this can of worms opens only from the inside. Yeah. Right. Right. So he's changed. Yes. As opposed to coming in and taking a big giant dump in the restaurant. <laughs> no. You've got to do this a little bit more on the sly. Right. I think it's you know? so interesting because it's like you can believe a situation is wrong and you can even be right. But that doesn't mean you can just walk in and assume that you could change it. Like yeah. you can't like that in itself is its own kind of destructive arrogance, which we're going to see. Mm. And the other thing that I think plays into it is he doesn't know how to feel about about Hackman yet is that he's still kind of like, well, is Hackman a racist? Is he my enemy? So when Hackman is saying you can't go sit there. Yeah. Hackman is saying, no, no, this will be the bad choice. This is actually going to hurt those people. <laughs> but he doesn't know that. He's like, no, I can sit where I want. These people have to live here long after we're packed up and gone. They'd rather bite their tongue off than talk to us. And we cut to a scene where we're, we're, there's the older gentleman who's obviously been burned. There's a woman we're trying to talk to. And she is just giving yes, sir, no, sir answers. Uh, by the way, this is not an actress. This is a real person in the area that uh, Parker found. This is a real location. And you'll see over and over again, most of the locations we're going to be in are real locations. Um, which is interesting to me because we just did the commitments. Mm -hmm. And even though they're completely different films, the love of real locations and the feeling of being in a real place and a real culture are exactly the same. The production design in this movie is perfect the cities and the, the cars and just outside with the swamps, like I mentioned earlier, and the costumes, um, the suits, William Defoe's suit. How yeah. great is William Defoe's suit in this yeah. movie? Yeah. And, and, and you mentioned it earlier, Hackman with the short sleeves, you mm -hmm. know, and just, just constantly disheveled. And that, and that woman is the authenticity, getting back to that, the regulars. I think, yeah. Don't you think that uh, Parker used a lot of those people? I mean, absolutely. You, yeah. you can't find those people on a ca casting couch. I mean, yeah. some of those some of those women and men. I mean, it's crazy how uh, how 
wonderful it is. Well, and that's and what's so funny. I was thinking about this because there are all these real locations, and I, I just watched yesterday. I watched the latest episode of The Mandalorian, mm. and all of what's so interesting with The Mandalorian is you look on how they did the sets, and it's all these moving, you know, uh, real time digital effects going on, and that you can create anything. And there's all this technology, and it's amazing, and it looks really cool. And that is the completely different from this is a real place. Mm-hmm. It's real. And it's yep. so funny because I'm so much. When I was younger, I was like in the. I want to be like Alfred Hitchcock and have everything just where I am. Have the food that I have, keep <laughs> bankers' hours, like everything <laughs> under my control. And when I actually started to film things, I realized no, it's the opposite. I want to be in real places because mm-hmm. real places to feel like real places, you know. Plus, the actors feed off real places. Absolutely, for their performance. Yeah. When we shot American History X, I mean, we did that movie for nine million and just and there's a big difference between being in an apartment in Venice and building a, a stage apartment for yep. that. I mean, and I, I mean, I got to believe that, I mean, the house, Francis McDormand's house and Brad DeReef's house. I mean, <clears throat> that is uh, just perfect. That's a real location too. And, and there, yep. I'm sure, you know, from your experience, it's harder to light. It's more, uh, less comfortable. It gets really hot. It's, cramped it's difficult and but there's nothing like it there's nothing like a real location yeah uh speaking of real locations we're going to go to another kind of worn down shack and there's some guys that bang on a door come on boy your brother hollis here phoenix yes sir well wake his ass up we want to see him why just wake him up boy and this is the kid that was at the lunch counter and they chase him down and they beat the crap out of it yeah yeah once again the mud the pigs Mm -hmm. the real just awful putting him into was it a chicken coop i don't know if it was a chicken coop or if it was i think it's a cotton field and where they were like stealing bales of cotton or something you admire these kids don't you thank you we're at a motel again, another real location, and this is the second day of shooting. And Hackett's response is really interesting. I think they're being used. I think they're being sent down here in their Volkswagens and their sneakers just to get their heads cracked open. What do you think he means by they're being used? Who's using them? It's just like like what's going on now. You know, they're trying to make us look bad, so they're staging this stuff, this conspiracy of election fraud. Everybody's been involved. Like all this horseshit and shenanigans and fake news bullcrap they throw out there to obfuscate the truth. What is the actual truth? Because they're complicit in that truth. And this same thing here. He knows what they did. He knows what they killed. And he knows that these aren't the only young people who have been dealt with severely. So him putting it off on this, oh, no, it's all lies. It's all lies. This is what they tell their populace. And then they get to hide behind that lying shield that they knowingly put up there, you know? So Yeah, Joe, I, I agree. And I, I think it's a combination. I also agree that this is the, this is the old Mississippi sheriff. Mm. Uh, guy talking before he yeah. joined the FBI. You know, he is the renegade, Hackman yep. is. And this is this is the stuff that, you know, he has been experiencing uh his entire life. Yep. And yep. this is this is what he feels. And you're not gonna you're not gonna shake him from it. Yep. Unless of course something really, really big happens, which we will soon be soon be getting to. <laughs> <laughs> you know you know what I think uh, is I think one of the interesting things about Hackman's character is he cares about the kids 
not the cause at yeah. the beginning of this movie is that it's not that he's not interested in finding out what happened to these three people. He is. Mm -hmm. But he thinks that the cause, to some degree, is bullshit. Did it ever occur to you that maybe they believed in what they were doing? Did it ever occur to them they're going to end up dead? Some things are worth dying for. And there is a look from Gene Hackman. I mean, I, it's totally worth watching this movie and just watch his reaction shots. Oh, yeah. Just watch when he's not talking because there's so much going on. And the look is sort of, does this guy really believe that? What do I think about this? that statement? Are some things worth dying for? Because I think when we meet Hackman at this point in his life, he's pretty cynical. Well, down here, they see things a little differently. People down here feel some things are worth killing for. That's a great turn of a line from right. some things are worth dying for to some yeah. things are worth killing for. There's so many of these exchanges. I mean, my God, have you ever... Uh, John, have you ever seen so many exchanges? I think there's probably eight different sequences throughout this movie where the dialogue is just, you know what it is, is they each outdo each other. Mm -hmm. This is worth dying for. Well, did they ever know that it might be killing for? Right. You know, they each outduel each other. It's like a competition between these two guys right. on how they feel deep in their heart. Right, it must speak to you as a screenwriter. Like you, 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 you die to write scenes like this that kind of lead to that end point, so you can go to black or go to the next scene that leave the audience going like, "Whoa," you know. And you're right. And I've been thinking since we started this podcast how what you said about this this is your the best uh, cop duo ever on screen. And I was just I've just been roaming it, roaming it, uh, ruminating it uh, as we've been doing this. And these scenes certainly could prove your point because. It's certainly a couple of cops with way more uh, at stake in every single one of their exchanges. Life and death is at stake at every single one of those exchanges because they're making decisions about what to do next with this investigation through these exchanges. So it's a great point. I've never, not as a writer, I mean, I haven't written a, a picture where, you know, these two guys are constantly at each other's throats, mm. but they have a fondness deep down in their gut for each other and a respect for each other. There's a building respect. One is one is used to doing things by the book. The other guy's organic. And, you know, yep. it's it's almost like Steve and I. Steve and I are the same way. Steve's very regimented <laughs> in how true. he does things. And I like to flow within the within the regiment that he creates. So it's, well, it's very much like I, us. I, I like the analogy. And I think much like, the you know, by the end of this film, they find a way that they both work together. Yeah. You know? That's true. Uh, it, it took you, you and I, you know, 30, 40 episodes. But, you know, we, we got there, too. Hey. Um, and then we go into this monologue. And first of all, Hackman was pissed at Parker that he had to do this monologue on day two. Wow. Because he's like, couldn't you give me a little more time to get to this thing? And the monologue is fascinating. You know, when I was a little boy, there was an old Negro farmer who lived down the road from us named Monroe. I guess he was just a little luckier than my daddy was. He bought himself a mule. That was a big deal around that town. Now, my daddy hated that mule. Because his friends were always kidding him about, oh, they saw Monroe out plowing with his new mule. And Monroe was going to rent another field now they had a mule. And One morning, that mule just showed up dead, poisoned the water. And there was never any mention of that mule again. Hmm. One time we were driving down the road and we passed Monroe's place and we saw it was empty. He just packed up and left, I guess, gone up north or something. I looked over at my daddy's face and I knew he'd done it. He saw that I knew. He was ashamed. He looked at me and he said, if you ain't any better than a nigger, son, who are you better than? 
So right there, that line is a, it's a lot. If you ain't any better, who are you better than? Because that's all about status. And then Defoe's response is, and I love this. This is a great piece of screenwriting, too. You think that's an excuse? No, it's not an excuse. This story about my daddy. <laughs> How amazingly written is that speech? Yeah. How genuine genius is it? I don't know if he came up with it or he just made it up, uh, Gromo. Yeah. But, um, I mean, to go to your, to, to integrate your dad and to integrate it in a way where you're talking about a mule and you're talking about how, you know, he killed the mule and basically ruined this black man's life. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the main speech of the movie yeah. because it's really, you're, you're setting up his character. It's that Quint speech in Jaws about uh, mm-hmm. Indianapolis, Indianapolis, you know, I mean, it, it really is just chilling and it's just so revealing about his character and it's at the perfect point and you know it doesn't matter when hackman if hackman does it on day two or day 40 he's still gonna nail it because he's hackman well and and the next line i think is so revealing because he says old man so full of hate he didn't know that being poor was what was killing him right and i think it's so revealing because i think it's the same way that he doesn't want to see the cause of the civil rights people he just sees the kids that got killed Mm -hmm. is that he doesn't want to see the importance of race he says well he was it was poor that was killing him not racism like it wasn't he's framing the world to make the racism less important at this point in his character arc and then in the next moment as we're settling in with this thing that just happened bam rock comes through the window and it is scary and sudden And they run outside. And by the way, Hackman is clearly reacting first to what's going on here. Get the light! Get the light! But I love Defoe running outside. He actually, you know, runs over some stuff. And they end up, man, there's the burning cross. Well, Hackman reacts to it from having, I think, experienced it before. Because exactly. he immediately tells him, hit the lights! Turn out the lights! Yeah. And he knocks <laughs> out the lamp. And then Defoe, once he gets his wits about him, Defoe leaps into action yep. and, and hugs the sides of the buildings. And I think Defoe, it looks like Defoe actually legitimately caught his ankle on one of those railings as he was jumping he it. Did. Because he it did. looks painful. I've been yeah. there. Yeah. And you, 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 and then sees them running off. You know, he can't really shoot at them from that distance. But, you know, both of them now understand, like, they're, everyone's aware about what they're doing, about what they're doing. There's no, no more jokes. And once again, it goes back to to Parker's genius. You know, you give that, you, you, you're always thinking about these shots when you're writing it and he's got the gun out front of him and great cinematography going back to uh, Peter uh, just those unforgettable shots that as a filmmaker, you just learn to love and appreciate. Mm -hmm. And Defoe's response is, we got to get a whole bunch more agents. (laughs) And and, And Hackman Hackman goes, yeah, yeah, make any difference if I tell you that's exactly the wrong thing to do? He's like, no. (laughs) Once again, just like in the diner, does it make any difference what I'm telling? So I wonder if they had followed Hackman's advice the whole time, if they had gotten through, would have gotten through this investigation a lot quicker. But, you know, Defoe's in charge. Except that I don't know that Hackman would have cared enough to go up against the sheriffs at the beginning of this movie maybe you know yeah that's a good point but also and i thought about that exact same point john and Mm. i think that when they bring in all those agents yeah i think that's where they really start to sort of slowly break them down it's that message of hey we're here to stay yeah right and we might not get what we want but we're not leaving 
and that could really tear at you. So I, I, I thought the exact same thing. I thought that was that a mistake, yeah. but in the end, I think it was, it was helpful all the way up until the beginning of the third act. Um, it's and again a great location. We take over a whole movie theater. All these <laughs> agents are coming in, and then we cut out to a cotton field. And here's an interesting thing: is that it wasn't the season for cotton, so uh, they had to put all the cotton on the plants. Wow! And so what Parker said was, there's something very surreal about being in the middle of Mississippi and having a whole bunch of white people putting <laughs> cotton back onto cotton plants. Oh my wow. god! <laughs> Um, uh, where's Instagram when you need it? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, by the way, the, the music is great. It's Trevor Jones. Uh, it, it, it manages to do, and, and there's also this gospel music that mm. I think it's Lenny McBride who is the singer at the very end of the film. She's arranging all the gospel music. And the combo of the atmospheric music, that driving, intense music that Trevor Jones does in the gospel music, I think works really, really well. How is Trevor Jones nominated for best score? I mean, it turned this movie, without that score is not what it is. I mean, yeah. it literally turns it into from a drama into a, a, a thriller, you know? I mean, that score is just boom, 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 you know, just, it's it's crazy good. Go ahead, yeah. Steve, I'm sorry. Um, I, no, it's fine, I was, lo- I was looking, it is, a, it is a weird year because this is the Rain Man year, mm. you yeah. know? So yeah. like, they're, 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 it's kind of all over the place what nominations were, you yeah. know? It's, it's one of those very mixed, mixed years. Um, yeah. uh, and what we see as we're in this cotton field is there's this, guy this young guy that got beat up is in this cage essentially um and we uh are off back in town we see cars driving as i think you mentioned earlier john with the the uh confederate flag Mm. on you know prominently on the car where have i seen Um, that recently who's the big shot it's clam no pointy hats but plenty of pointy heads and Hackman heads into the barbershop again, it's real location. They just had to dress it up a little bit. Uh, and he says, hello, and there is the mayor getting a shave, R. Lee Emery. Yeah. <laughs> nobody like him. Nobody. Late great. <laughs> what was shocking to me is how great of an actor he was because I was so used to him just in full metal jacket. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because he was a drill instructor in real life. That's what made him so great in Full Metal Jacket. But just another great acting piece. I mean, just, he's he's incredible. We don't take to outsiders telling us how to live our lives. And I'm here to tell you, our niggers were happy until those beatnik college kids came down here staring things up. Before that, there wasn't anybody complaining. (laughs) Nobody dared. He says, way I figure it's like three sticks of old dynamite. Shake them up and we're going to be scraping bodies off the street. Them kids you're looking for, I just about bet you a shiny new dime. They're setting up in Chicago right now, drinking a cold beer and having a big laugh about all the commotion they've stirred up down here. Well, I sure hope so. It's so, you know, I mean, I know it's hard not to get political on our podcast sometimes, but... The use of the idea of the hoax mm-hmm. to reinforce certain sets of behavior is, it's so fascinating how strongly it's in this film. Mm-hmm. Yep. It must be a hoax. Right. Yep. Be- because if it's not a hoax, then something really bad has happened. Because what's, what's interesting about the mayor is, and which they say, is the mayor is not in the Klan. Right. I mean, there is a distinction between the level of racism of the Klan and the guys that killed these three kids and the sort of general, you know, sea level of racism that exists throughout the town and where the mayor is. People got the wrong idea about the South. 
Simple fact is, Anderson, we got two cultures down here. White culture and the colored culture. Now, that's the way it always has been. That's the way it always will be. Well, I mean, we just finished The Untouchable, Steve, and the mayor is almost like that judge. Yeah, your name's not on the ledger, but you've done enough or you've turned away. Sure. You've taken money before that you're guilty. And I think the mayor has turned away from a number of these crimes that these people have done just so he can stay in power as the mayor. And what's almost as amazing is he does that whole scene with a cigar in his mouth. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah, he does. While being I'm, shaved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While being shaved. <laughs> Not an easy thing to do. <laughs> the, 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 the button on the scene is Hackman says, you know, because there's the baseball game being played. He asks mm. about the score. He says, you like baseball? Yeah, I do. He says, it's the only time when a black man can wave a stick at a white man and not start a riot. <laughs> uh, Hackman's out on the streets. Parker loved dust and he loved fog. So there's a, at nighttime, we're going to have smoke and fog. Daytime, we're going to have dust. It creates that great visual diffusion. It really changes the way the whole city looks, uh, works really, really well. And there he sees Frances McDormand out on the street, and they have a moment of eye contact. And she goes into hair salon, and he goes from the barbershop into the hair salon. I hate the way I look, you know. Uh, what do you think? A uh, permanent wave, maybe, or a bleach job, or something? I think a wig's your only hope, hon. You ain't gonna be able to do much with that cue ball. <laughs> um, and then a woman says, I think it's a shame that those two kids are dead. I do hope we find them. Actually, it's three kids that are missing. There's a colored kid also. I think that's key to the whole movie. Yeah, the town values the white life over the black life very clearly, yeah. Well, and here's the interesting Even thing. Even in the most subconscious ways, yeah. Totally subconscious. Well, here's one of the interesting things about this, is this movie really is clear about pointing out the different way that the two white kids are treated from the black kids yeah, yeah, throughout yeah. the whole film. The main controversy about this film is that this is a story about you have to have two white guys to tell the story about racism. Mm. That's why Orion didn't want one of the reasons they wanted this to be more fictitious is they wanted to create two white characters because the feeling and this is Hollywood history for a long time yep. that we got to have white people to let us into this story and that the African-Americans throughout this whole film are essentially passive yeah. almost yeah. the entire film. And yeah. so. And so it's interesting to me that the film is very aware of the fact that the two white kids are being treated different from the one black kid, but they're but they're also repeating it in the same way by mm -hmm. saying we can only see this through the eyes of two heroic white guys. The white savior complex. Yeah. I mean, I get that and I get, you know, Spike Lee's problem with it and it's those comments are fair. But I mean, let's face it, in some of these small towns where they were, I mean, these people were just constantly scared yeah. for their lives. Sure. You know, Absolutely. I mean, when you're that one kid at the diner getting back to just mm -hmm. uh, Willem Foe sitting down next to him, getting that kid almost killed. And I, I think that, you know, what they did amazingly was just really project that fear of the African-American culture at that time, mm -hmm. you know, and the helplessness. Yep. Now, granted, you know, I, I love the Aaron kid, and I'm sure we're going to get to that soon. Um, but I, it wasn't all helplessness. And I think that the movie takes a little bit of a sort of an unfair shot, but it is what it is. Well, and speaking of that kid, this conversation, which we do also reveal that Frances McDormand is the wife of uh, Brad Dorif's character. Mm -hmm. 
we, this is the first time we've seen Stephen Tobolowski's character, which is uh, Clayton Towney, who is uh, a businessman, but also we know kind of the head of local clan. But this scene gets interrupted because a car comes screeching through town and dumps that kid out on the street. And all of our FBI guys run out and our sheriff guys run out and the sheriffs are like, We'll handle this. We don't need your damn help. And then Hackman comes at Defoe. That's a kid from the diner. Now maybe you'll think twice before you talk to colored kids with an audience. One of the interesting things about this moment is that Defoe says, look, they were just sending a message. And the message is coming from Clayton Towney, which is the Stephen Tobolowsky character, who's the head of the local clan. And that both Defoe and Hackman have, fig- have found out that piece of information. And Defoe's like, well, how did you find that out? And he's like, well standard bureau procedure you know they both right. have their own methods and that's hackman hackman is the opposite he mm. gets the girls you yeah. know he gets the girl he, he gets the girls in the hair place to give them all the information that's well, the beauty and, and that's because like i grew up in the south it's what they say is like you get more from honey than you you know you get more flies from honey <laughs> than you do with vinegar and it's true he goes in there self-deprecating himself joking about his receding hairline and everything like right. what can you do with this that puts their guards down and they can talk to them. They feel like so people open up more in the South if you make it seem like you're just, you know, having a conversation about whatever. And it just kind of slides out. Uh, and so it's he does that throughout the whole film. Even when he goes into the boys club and has that conversation with him later when he grabs Rooker's balls, he's like having a he's trying to have a more laid back, open conversation with them. But they're too aggressive at that time. Well, and Defoe is the school of the bigger hammer. It's like, oh, yeah, we have right, more right. resistance. Let me bring in more agents. Yeah, you know, right, let's exactly. bring in more people. By the hotel. You know, yeah, yeah. by that's so crazy. That, I mean, that's <laughs> such a great thing throughout the whole thing is, you know, Defoe is constantly using the strength of the government and Hackman is using the strength of grabbing a crotch. Yeah. You know, I mean, right, right. It, it's beautiful. Um, and now we get to the moment that you were talking about. We've heard that we found uh, where the car is and we have our row of FBI guys just walk right into that swamp. <laughs> <laughs> to which Hackman's reaction, apparently the real Gene Hackman said to Parker, it's like, you know, there was a time we would have like a studio and they would like build a set and then we, the water would be nice and clean because there are leeches in here and not to mention crocodiles and all sorts of stuff. And this was, it was nasty and sure. dangerous. This was not fun to shoot, f- shoot at all. <laughs> but visually, it's great. Did uh, what did Hackman Steve? What did Hackman say? He was he did he did he was he all for it or did he? Did oh, he, he, he it sounds it sounds like he did it all reluctantly. It's it sounds <laughs> like what here. I don't really know the answers, but but this is the impression I get from listening to Parker talk about Gene Hackman is that he was occasionally grumpy and surly and a full one hundred percent professional, just <laughs> like. And he said the same about Defoe. Is like these guys, they came and prepared. They knew what they were doing. As soon as the cameras were rolling, he never had to worry about anything with them. But yeah. I also think Hackman is a bit of the elder statesman was uh, <laughs> like, oh, come on. Why are we doing this? <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, it just makes the movie. You know, it's such, once again, it's such a great visual. And, and and again, they find the car, and he's like, "We got to search this whole swamp. It's like big swamp." There's a telephone back at the truck stop. Get to it, get on it, and get me a hundred more men here by morning. What bureau people, sir? I don't care if it's a goddamn army. I want this entire swamp searched. And again, Hackman says, "Don't do it. You will start a war." Yeah. To which Defoe's response is, "It was a war long before we got here." And the thing is, that's true. 
Yeah. There is a big body count that's been going on for a long, long time. Right. Defoe is not wrong at all. I think his methods are not right, but the fact that this is a war is not wrong. Well, if we t- I feel like if we took Hackman's route, we wouldn't find out for five to ten years what really happened. But because but we take Defoe's route, so they're both coming from two different angles, but they're squeezing this town till finally these people pop out of it who are really guilty. So I think both methods worked just in different ways um, to finally get to the answer as quickly as possible. I mean, just once again, I mean, this is a war movie. Yeah. You know, there was a, a war long before we got here, and yeah. we're going to be we're getting ready to fight. You know, a big war in in a few yeah. minutes. Be well, yeah. To that point, that's exactly what happens next. Because a, we have the navy show up. We have all these guys in uniform show up, mm-hmm. and simultaneously, we have the attack of the white supremacists, burning down churches, burning down buildings, and this, of course, these are all you know real fires. There's no CG at this time. Several of them are actually churches, like abandoned churches. Mm. And so, you know, Alan Parker, who is not religious, still said it felt pretty weird to burn down a church. Mm. You know, one of the few things that was built is there's a church and in the foreground is like a pond. And so you can see the fire reflecting in the pond. Uh, They built the pond because Parker wanted that reflection. But the church was already there. Um, And uh, that's director hubris. You know, it'd be great. A pond. Let's build a pond right here. Anyway. Of course. <laughs> well, but it's it's so funny. It's like you know. Well, and it all all of this depends on budgets and personality and stuff. But how f- far do you push to get a little thing? Yeah. You know, I mean, how many movies have we talked about? Or just in this film where there's this little thing, yeah. and that little thing is great. It's all the little things, you know. And and me me making movies, you know, it's me constantly when I'm giving notes or. Or, uh, you know, on the final cut or whatever, I'm just begging these directors to please put this back in or put that in. And you know what, guys? I'm usually right. <laughs> because I because I think like a I screenwriter and, and, yeah. and I, I think of the little stuff. And sometimes you have directors that don't think many times I've worked with many of them, but they don't. Think of that little stuff. Mm. And Parker does here. And he, he does in some ways. And that's why he's so great. And that's why we're here talking about him. It, it, it's such an interesting thing because there's always this weird balance of, of this is how much money I have. This is how much time I have. This is how pissed off my actor is. This is the pressure of the studio, which I'm sure, David, you've dealt with many, many times. And their notes, which can be often ridiculous and horrible and stupid and like how do i balance all of those things and and get the best movie to come out it's so difficult and i think even more so when you're dealing with issues like what alan parker is dealing with in this film you know because now you're also billing dealing with difficult political emotional complicated stuff along with all the other filmmaking stuff well hackman should be happy uh david fincher didn't direct this you would have had to walk in that (laughs) in that lake in that swamp a hundred times you know (laughs) yep and maybe why he retired. <laughs> Fair. Um, and now we get to the scene. As you mentioned before, it's like the motel's upset at us. Buy the motel. <laughs> well, how high can I go? Whatever it takes. But that's what I'm talking about, the little stuff right there. Once yeah. again, Defoe, you know, he's working for the federal government. He's going to do anything to solve this case. That's a great Kevin Dunn, too, the great character actor Kevin Dunn. There, yes. Who is, of course, was in Veep this last uh, few years. has been great in that. So, yeah. Yeah. He's awesome. And he has yeah. some great moments in this film, too. Would he have shown um, me? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. 
That's the best. I love that line. One of the, there was, I forget his name, but um, uh, African-American who had been part of the civil rights movement who had protested against this film. And the thing that he said is like, this frames the FBI as this army of people mm. helping in the civil rights movement. He's like, they weren't helping us. They were tapping our phones. Yeah. You know, yeah. which is definitely true. It, and, and the thing is, and this is why the, the generational gap between Hackman and Defoe is really key. J. Edgar Hoover was not a fan of the civil rights movement. Right. You know, if you were a Black Panther, man, the FBI was not your buddies. Mm. Um, but but also federal troops and the FBI was helping in the civil rights movements in different ways. Today in Jessup County, Mississippi, amidst the violence that has erupted here this week, the eyes of the nation have been firmly fixed on the search for the three missing civil rights workers. All these federal agents, all these troops have showed up and this has become a big story. So now the reporters have showed up and they're interviewing people while we're searching the swamps. And this is, you know, as you were mentioning, these a lot of them improv amazing little pieces of sound bites of the locals and oh, what yeah. they think of it. Well, I think it's all a big hoax, but if they are in that that's wrong, then they ask for it. You go to the sheriff, he has a word, a, a uh, phrase for what NAACP stands for. Oh which my is, God, yes. <laughs> NAACP. I bet y'all don't even know what it stands for. There's alligators, apes, coons, and possums. Tell you what you got. You got your NAACP, you got your SNCC, you got your COFO, and you know what all that mess is? B-U-L-L-S-H-I-T. Yeah. Now we're at the ruin of the church. This is the kid you were mentioning earlier. This is Aaron. Maybe there'll come a time when we won't have to say, Mr. Stucky. One day there'll come a time when we just say Stucky or Sheriff. And one day there'll come a time when the Sheriff won't even be a white man. This kid from Family Matters. Oh, he's the older brother of Urkel. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah, that's him as a young man. Yep. I never watched Family Matters. I don't think oh. I ever saw a single episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's, the, he's the brother. Well, and he, I never saw it either, John. What's your problem? <laughs> and then a car pulls up, and everyone scatters. I wonder if I could ask you a few questions. And no one's going to answer his questions. And Gene Hackman picks some flowers. I don't suppose you can tell what kind of flower these are, could you? They're trumpet pitches. They're beautiful. They really are. They don't smell so good, but they're <laughs> And this is one of two times where he repeats the same thing. It's mm -hmm. sort of a, he has some standard folksy ways to connect with people, and he uses them more than once. Yeah. Um, and, what's, and you know how I said watch Hackman earlier? Watch Defoe in this scene, because... Defoe is having to watch Hackman play the game the way he wants to play it. The reason people don't want to talk to you is because they're afraid it'll get back to the law. We are the law. Not around here, you ain't. <laughs> I think that this is where Defoe starts. This is the beginning of where Defoe starts to get it a little bit, yeah. especially after this scene. It ain't colored folks you should be talking to. Who should we be talking to? And they start, they don't want to say it. But Aaron, this kid, he has the courage and turns around, start with the sheriff's office. Why aren't you afraid? How come you ain't? <laughs> so again, you mentioned Spike Lee earlier. This is this character is what Spike Lee, this phrase he came up with, this is the magical Negro. You know, mm. this is the, yeah. the, the character that seems somehow otherworldly, that is going to help the white people on their journey. You know, and you see this, whether it's Legend of Bagger Vance or there's all sorts of movies where you see this this is a trope. 
I think this is a good example of it. And not a good example of the trope, but like a really interesting character in this mm-hmm. case. But again, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't think we can talk about the film without talking about the objections to the film. I think that's a fair uh, criticism, but I don't, and, and look, and I actually I'll go back and forth on Spike with this because yes, it is a magical Negro, but the magical Negro rarely suffers the consequences of their actions in these films. And this kid gets a this kick to does. the face and twice kicked to the ribs by Rooker, the main villain, uh, you yeah. could argue, the main antagonist of the movie. So whereas Bagger Vance, sure, he doesn't. And there's other examples where they don't. But in this, the kid pays a price for being outspoken, for being strong. So he's not as magical, which would imply untouchable, as you've seen fair. other examples be in other movies. So although his criticism is slightly fair, I don't think it was 100% spot on for this particular character in this movie. And he one ups he one ups to fuck the kid. Yeah, right. You know, right. and I mean, and that just goes back to the testament of the dialogue. You know, the dialogue in this movie is 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 so fantastic yeah. and just this scene's a lot like the Hackman Defoe scenes, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. where you know, this kid is a tough little kid and he's quick and he's smart. And he knows. So uh, we're at Brad DeReef's house with Francis McDormand and our FBI guys come in and um, Defoe goes to talk to the deputy and Gene Hackman makes his way into the kitchen with Francis McDormand. Please uh, don't let me interrupt you. It's just that when you heard a question ask a dozen times, it gets kind of boring. I guess so. Their relationship Hmm. is so interesting and part of it is just these are two unbelievable actors. Yeah. Like, there's so much. And you wouldn't think that they would have so much chemistry. I mean, he's older and it's the, the situation seems so weird. But, man, every time they're in the room together, it's fascinating. Where did she come from? You know, she just, like, bur- I mean, I know she did a lot of stage work. And, I mean, I looked up some stuff for her bio. Yeah. Um, I don't know. She had already done Blood Simple, right? Yeah. yeah, it's after that. Just what an actress. She used to move around a lot. I want to say her, her dad was a salesman, so she was kind of moving around all the, the whole Midwest. Mm. And so I think that was probably very helpful for her character to, yeah, just the, the, the chemistry between those two. And I'm sure, how, how much older is Hackman than her? You know, yeah, she, it's right. got to be 25 years, right? I would yeah. think so, yeah. Yeah, a little May-December thing, yeah. Well, and here's, here's my question about this relationship, because it, it evolves, obviously, is what... How much of this is Hackman's character being just genuinely attracted to this person? Mm-hmm. How much is it him knowing that she's an important witness? And how much is he using his attraction or, or this connect, creating, fostering this connection in order to get information out of her? Yeah, I would argue that it's attraction first and foremost, and it's attraction all the way through. It, it, it's, it takes Defoe constantly telling him that he needs to talk to this woman because of the missing time that the deputy claims he was with his wife if they can break that part of the story down then they'll have the information they need to kind of get this get Darif's character um so to me it's he's reluctant to do it so i think from the beginning it's an attraction from the beginning it's he sees her as this kind of like delicate flower amongst the thorns that he has to save or amongst the weeds that he somehow has to say he gets into a bit of a savior complex, which I love with the way it ends. This one line she has at the end, I know I'm giving away the end, when she says, 
if I wanted to move from here, I'd have done it a long time ago. And that it's like that destroys this idea that Hackman had in his mind about her that he could somehow save her. And she's a lot more stronger than he thinks or gives her credit for. And I love. I that. think I think you're giving him too much credit. <laughs> I, I okay. think I think this starts off as seventy five percent using 25% attraction. Wow. And, okay. And I, and I, and I think that it evolves over and <laughs> the, and that ratio completely shifts right over the course of the movie, maybe, maybe 60, 40, but then by the end of the movie, it's genuinely 100%. I mean, he loves this woman. Yeah. By the end. And, yeah. and, and, but he knows, remember, remember the story in the beginning about his wife? Yeah. You know, she left, you know, because he was traveling all over the, all over the place as as an FBI agent. His first wife left. He knows he can't have her because he's going to be doing the same thing. He doesn't want to put her through the same torture as he does that he did with his wife. And she, she says that essentially, but we'll get to, we get to the end Mm -hmm. of the movie that she reinforces that with the, don't send me a postcard from Des Moines. Oh, right. The, 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 I I put the percentages almost exactly what you do, David. Mm-hmm. I think it was. I think it starts off with him. Here is a here is a potential witness, and what's interesting is he comes in in his with his charms to all of these situations. So he uses his personality to sort of break through people, but 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 you could see the connection just rising yeah. up throughout the film. And, and and I also think this is why Gene Hackman is such a great actor and his this character is so fascinating because mm. I don't think we get to know. I don't think we ever get to really understand exactly what's going on with this guy. I mean, we know he really cares about her, that's yeah. definite. But like, you know, what is his what is the evolution that's happening internally is hard to understand for yeah. sure. Um, and then it's, you know, it's time to go and he heads out and the baseball game is on. And so he starts to say the same baseball <laughs> line. You know what they say, don't you? It's the only game where a black man can wave a stick. Well, in I know white. I would have heard that. <laughs> and then he, he, he smiles and he pokes Brad Dereef in the stomach. Yeah. That is the weirdest thing. <laughs> um, and so, um, uh, not dominant exactly, but I mean, it's invading it's, this guy's personal space in that way is a power a, move. It's an alpha male move, absolutely. Yeah, it's a kind of like, well, let me see how far I can push him, and the touching of yep. the stomach, and he doesn't react to it or doesn't push back on it. You know, uh, David, you mentioned earlier this idea of Brad Dreef and, and the nomination. It's actually a very valid conversation to have because he doesn't play this guy like there's no depth to what Rooker is doing. Or Tobal, uh, not, not to insult anybody, but like Derive is a main one of the main antagonists in this movie, and he plays him so unusual than what you've seen in other interpretations of characters like this in these movies. He's more passive than you think. He's randomly aggressive in certain moments when he's getting beat up by Hackman and the way he lies in that chair, flipping around, yep. slipping around. Yep. Like even, and it's horrible when, of course, he's beating up Francis McDormand. But it's so clumsy in the way he's doing it. It's so aggressively uh, brutal, but clumsy in the way he's doing it. It's just not. He has no natural instinct to be aggressive necessarily. He has the instinct to be the imp, but not necessarily the aggressor. And I think the way he plays all these scenes as kind of almost, he's almost outside of himself observing himself. And that's a fascinating decision to make as an actor to play the character in that way. 
And it's obvious as you're watching him how he's doing it. It's, it's incredible. And getting back to uh, Steve, what you said about um, about that that poking in the stomach mm. is he's so secure with himself. Yeah, you know, right. Brad Reeves' character that he, you know, a lot of guys that were insecure would have grabbed ha- Hackman over retaliated. Right, right. You know, or smacked his got, hand away. Yeah, yeah. He just takes it. It's 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 a very interesting point that you bring up, Steve. Tell me, Mr. Anderson, how does a woman like that end up with a shithead in there? You know what these small towns are like. A girl spends her entire time in high school looking for the guy she's going to marry and spends the rest of her life trying to figure out why. But this is my point. This is what I mean, what I said earlier. I think he's created a fantasy about her that isn't real. But he just did the way mm. he explains this right here in this moment. He's saying, oh, you know, she's a poor girl, got stuck in this town, didn't have blah, blah. But in fact, she's way more than that. But in his mind, he's creating a porcelain doll that can fall apart at any moment, which is a lot stronger than she looks. Uh, but he has a fantasy, a male fantasy. Men have, ma- have fantasies about women all the time. They create these ideas that women are in when in fact... Wait, men have fancy- fantasies yeah. about women? <laughs> but I just mean, I mean like they create... This is the first time hearing about this. <laughs> uh, they create fantasies of what these women actually are experiencing in their lives or create fantasies they could somehow save them. But these women are yeah. much, much more in control of their lives than men actually think. Yeah. Well, and part of that is casting and, you know, Frances McDormand... Is such an incredible actor, and mm. she always has so many layers, and she has so much strength about her yeah, in yeah, almost yeah. everything she plays. So even in playing in this role where she is somewhat in a victim position, yeah. she's a powerful person. And what this is where it comes up is that there's 50 minutes missing, and that 50 mm-hmm. minutes, he says he's with his wife, she backs up his alibi, and basically... Everything hinges on that. Uh, the one other piece of information we get in this scene is that we look at the wedding photo and Gene Hackman notices all the guys have their hands in their belts and they're making this symbol. And So what is that? Some sort of Masonic thing? No. KKK. And then while our deputy is dealing with some drunk, Hackman turns around, grabs some flowers, and he goes right back to the house. Mm-hmm. Mm. Late at night. Mm. At night. You dirty, man. You dirty. <laughs> yeah, with the flowers, <laughs> with the flowers, no less. Would you Would you like some iced tea? Do you have anything stronger? <laughs> <laughs> My husband's not here. Well, uh, actually, it was you I wanted to talk to. Me. Yeah. Okay, well, you better come in then. And they talk about the flowers, and he uses the same line: "They're beautiful." They don't smell so nice, but they're pretty. <laughs> and they sit down. There's some small talk. But then they get into, are you married? And he was married and was never home. And this is where he says, I guess she got fed up with uh, phone calls from Miami and postcards from Des Moines. It's just such an interesting scene because you're like, wait, what is this scene? I thought I was in like a detective movie. I thought he was going after clues. What is he doing? And, but then he gets to, and she, by the way, she kind of reinforces his statement about what happened about high school. She says, you know the South, Mr. Anderson. You leave high school, marry the first boy, makes you laugh. I think this, Steve, I think this harkens back to their first look. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a, there's a really, there's an instant connection. Like she's, she, she, she digs this guy, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, in, in the very, in the very opening scene. And, and he kind of knows that he kind of has her a little bit under his thumb yeah. because it's pretty ballsy. He sits down right there. Yeah. You know, he's sitting down. He's making himself comfortable. 
which is cool. You know, my boss has this thing about um, an hour, 50 minutes to be exact, that your husband says that he's with you. And again, the subtext with it, you could see in the performance and her look and the way she says. Yes, he was. Like you can see all the layers in the statement mm-hmm. of I am lying. I know I have to lie. I need to lie convincingly. You could see all of that in her performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a pity because that means that I don't have an excuse for hanging around here anymore. Great line. Yeah. <laughs> what a great line. <laughs> Then they talk about the flowers. Says, you know what the kind they are? They're like trumpet pitchers. My daddy used to call them ladies from hell because they're kind of <laughs> never. Watch Gene Hackman's eyes. Watch the way his eye. You, we've all, I'm sure, had that moment with someone where suddenly things felt romantic, and yeah. the way your eyes flick down and look and make eye contact and then move away from eye contact. Gene Hackman, it's so pure what he does in that moment. It's and then he, it's the craziest thing. He touches her hair. Yeah, yeah. How I mean that is so intimate to do. Didn't he just poke her husband in the stomach? So it's <laughs> like Jesus. It's like those are the two juxtapositions, right? One is to dominate, the other is to show. Yeah, like it's the True. it's the it's the biting of the fruit, right? He's biting the forbidden fruit by touching her. She's married. He yeah. has no business doing this. He's in her yeah. house. But it's his way of saying, "I if I could touch you more, I could, I would." But I want to take a chance and touch a piece of you at least, just to you know feel it in my hands. So that's what that moment is. John, until you said that, so stupid. But I never connected the taking the alpha male dominant position with the the husband before you're coming on to his wife. Right. I hadn't put those two things together, and obviously that's what's going on. Yeah. But at this point, I think he's still using her. I agree. I agree. That's, uh, I'm not as cynical as you two, I think, in this one, but go ahead. I, I'll, I'll defer a, to both your opinions, though. You've always been the more, more romantic. I mean, we, that's, <laughs> that's been fair. proven. That's, that's well proven. That's um, very true. <laughs> and now we we hear the rising of a hymn coming up, and we end up in church. May the peace and the joy and the Holy Ghost abide with all of you for now and forever. Amen. And as this is happening, I'm starting to get nervous. I mean, it just feels like something bad's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And then we see those guys come up and they put on hoods and they start <sighs> heading towards the church just as we're clearing out of the bleachers. And there are a whole bunch of guys outside. They got like axe handles. And and then the reaction when the parishioners come out and see what is in front of them, it's just terrifying. <laughs> it's a terrifying moment. And what, and what does our main kid do? What does Aaron do? He just falls down to his knees and pray. And yeah. prays. Yeah. Wow. And, and they're doing, ter- I mean, they're hitting everybody, regardless of age. Yeah. They're jumping. They don't, they don't show them raping the women, but they show them. They could be, like, yeah. Trying to or possibly might be raping these women. And it's, it's, it's horrible. You know, it's horrible. Jesus will see. And up comes Michael Rooker and, you know, right to that kid. You already been told once. Now we don't want to have to tell you again. You go making any more trouble or flapping them boot lips off to any of them federal men. And we sure as hell going to have to put you in the ground, boy. And that's without a pine box. And another kick to the gut. <clears throat> yeah. Just brutal. 
How do you think the Negroes have been treated here in Mississippi? They're treated about fair, about as good as they ought to be. Can I please go back to the dialogue here? Do you think, do you think that was scripted, or do you think? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Fair, Parker said some of it's improv, but I don't know mm. what it is. I know Parker likes improv because he did a lot in the commitments too. Yeah, and I also know in the commitments, but I don't know about this film. Is he would improv with the actors, so he is performing mm. with them, building up some of the stuff on the set. But I don't know if he did that in this film because that line is so. Good. It's like better than anything you could ever write. <laughs> it's, it's you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. And who, know, who knows how many of their lines he didn't use? So he might have asked them over and over again. Now, you know, like, uh, how would you respond to this? How, so it was like trying all the different lines. And I'm sure the person, if they improved it, had heard it before in their life from someone else they knew yeah. saying it that way. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, but by, by the way, I don't know why this popped in my brain, but I, I still remember when years ago we did when Harry met Sally that mm. all the interviews, they're all just cast. And that was all scripted. Those are all actors, all <laughs> scripted. And when Harry met Sally and those little, little couple interview things, which I remember when we did this, did the podcast on it, that was so shocking to me that those yeah. weren't real people because it just <laughs> seems so real. So um, and oh, by I the wish way, you wouldn't have told me that, Steve. <laughs> well, we we burst all the bubbles here yeah, on the we Cinephiles. Do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we we spo- do. Spoil every movie, ruin every special effect. That's our job. <laughs> we should be oh. our new slogan. We'll burst your bubble. <laughs> the Cinephiles. <laughs> um, and uh, and then there, oh, there's this woman, this one line that's just so horrible. They're not like us. They don't take baths. They stink. They They're nasty. And this whole time we're watching these Navy guys, you know, search the swamp and we have a bunch of white guys, including Michael Rooker, just laughing at them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this next scene is fascinating, which is it's Frances McDormand and she's got an African-American baby in her arms and there's an African-American woman that she's talking to and they seem like friends. Mm-hmm. And and then out comes her husband. <laughs> Bye, hon. I'm going to be a couple hours. All right. Well, Mary, is that your Betsy's kid? And the change in the feeling of the scene. And this woman takes her child back and walks away. And what does Brad DeReef says? He says, Funny. The kids are so cute. Hmm. It's another perfect line. Oh, God. Now, that was scripted. Oh, yeah. And that is just incredible. Because the whole scene is built around that line, like you, yeah, the, the, yeah. yeah it's got to be scripted, of course. Yeah. yeah, the mayor is out talking to camera, and then the the, the reporters they find Stephen Tobolowski. I told you, I'm a businessman. I'm also a Mississippian, and an American, and I am getting sick and tired of the way many of us Mississippians are having our views distorted by you newspaper people and on the TV. So let's get this straight: we do not accept Jews because they reject Christ. And their control of the international banking cartels are at the root of what we call communism today. And what's so crazy is, I I literally have seen this this year on Facebook. Of course. Yeah. 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 This is right out of the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is this completely fictitious conspiracy theory that, you know, was way back in the 20s and 30s that Henry Ford was putting out, that there's some conspiracy of Jewish bankers that want to take over the world. And as a, you know, I'm a Jewish guy. I mean, I can remember being taught this at Temple, that this is, and it's still here. And I still see you here. Anytime you hear George Soros, who is paying money for this conspiracy, that's it. 
It's the yeah. same thing that this guy is talking about from the KKK. We do not accept papists because they bow to a Roman dictator. We do not accept Turks, Mongols, Tartars, Orientals, nor Negroes because we're here to protect Anglo-Saxon democracy and the American way. Where have I heard that before? Right. Yeah. It's, it's right here. I mean, like some of the words might be slightly more subtle today, but, you know. Yeah. But not that much. And the reason more they get away with it. The more they stay the same. Yeah. 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 And the reason they get away with it is because they, you know, keep underfunding education, keep doing this. So you don't ever learn about the stuff from the past. You don't go back. Like David said earlier, the fact that you don't go and watch the movie. Like you, how many people do you know have watched Mississippi Burning from the new generation of people that you know? How many of them go back and go and really get and then hear this stuff and go, wow, this was in 1989, 88, this film talking about 64. You know, it's just like it's crazy. It's and the playbook is there, and it's been used many, many times. Unfortunately, yep. yep. You create an enemy, you know, build up a scapegoat, tell yep. them they're taking away your happiness, your freedom, your money, your right, future, right. and then you just build on that and turn it into a conspiracy. And everything that works against that philosophy yep. happens to be a hoax. When in fact, the real reason you're pissed off is because you're poor and you can't handle that. Well, that goes back to Gene Hackman's life. Exactly. That's yeah. what I'm getting at. That's why I think his his story carries so much more weight throughout the movie as it develops. Yeah. 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 Speaking of Gene Hackman, he's going up to this nice social club where we got some pool and we got some beers. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he says, you got to be a member to drink here. And they go, member, Wait, member of what? Member of what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love the derisive way he says that. <laughs> yeah. Um. And and he gets a beer, and we have some jokes about bootlegging from when he used to be a sheriff. We ain't too interested in your good old Mississippi boy stores, Anderson. You ain't from here no more. And then, man, Michael Rooker comes at him. All I know is we got 5,000 in this county who ain't registered a boat yet. And as far as I'm concerned, they never will. So you can tell your stiff suits up there in Washington, D.C., that they ain't going to change us one bit. Unless it's over my dead body or a lot of dead. It's crazy to me that you're telling the FBI guy. I mean, how safe do you feel in your environment that you're literally saying you'd kill Frank? Is that what you're saying? I wouldn't give it no more thought than wringing a cat's neck. And there ain't a court in Mississippi that convict me for it. Well, this seems the turning point in the movie. I, it goes back to the fact that these guys are the club and they are tight and nobody's going to give this guy a damn thing. And uh, when he grabs his scrotum, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it sends a message. Get this straight, you corn old fucker. You tell your queer ass <laughs> bosses up north they ain't never going to find them civil rights down here. So you might as well pack up your bags and head your ass home back up north where you belong. Wake up! <laughs> and this is almost a declaration of war. He's almost been kind of nice up to this point, John. Yeah. Yep. And this is essentially, you know, shots fired. This ain't poking you in the stomach. This is grabbing yeah. your nuts. And it's because yeah. he came at him in such aggressive way. And you know this, right? As men, we know this. If someone comes at you aggressive, if you don't come at them uh, like a little bit yeah, to no, dominate. Yeah, no, there's a time. They, yeah, there are moments, right? Not all the time, obviously. There are moments, no. though, when you have to put a end or they're going to keep 
pushing and pushing and stepping on you and stepping on you more and more. So the fact that he grabs his scrotum, and by the way, Rooker plays this great. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, because the, the reddening of the face and the, because he doesn't hit him, he doesn't try to move or anything, he just takes it. And Hackman is essentially, figuratively grabbing them all by the scrotum and saying, I'm a down-home boy just like you, and I understand country justice, and this is what you're going to get if you keep pushing. You get this straight shit, kicker. Don't you go mistaking me for some whole other body. You got your brains in your dick if you think we're just going to fade away. We're going to be here till this thing's finished. And you're right, Dave. That's this is the turning point of the movie. This is where, you know, the war now is right there in their faces, and someone's willing to fight back on their terms and that scares the shit out of me. I wonder, and I wonder the rehearsal that went into this scene, you know, because mm. I mean, I wonder how much time Hackman and Rooker and I mean, Brad Dorif is excellent once again in this scene. This, I hearken back to, to Parker's direction because this scene is insane. It's just the beauty of cinema. It's the beauty of cinema right here. Right. So, so, so a couple things about this. One is it's funny because we just did the commitments. I know in the commitments, they did a lot of rehearsal. They did band Mm. rehearsal in the morning and they did acting rehearsal in the afternoon. And most of these people were not actors. They were musicians. My understanding is they did very little rehearsal for this movie. Mm. He didn't do very much. Part of it is he knew he had a cast that was going to come in and just bring it. Part of it. And he also, he says he doesn't like to storyboard and shot list very much. He doesn't do it very much. What he likes to do is he sort of sets up like some things in his mind that he wants. And then he lets the actors play within them. So he says, mm-hmm. well, at this moment, I would like you to be maybe over here. But how you get there, or when you get there, you're going to figure it out. Um, and the other thing he said, which I think is really interesting, and is, is that what he does is with his DP and his AD, he always makes sure that he drives to set with them. And because mm. the set, the locations they're shooting on were usually at least 30 minutes away from where they're staying, that many every morning he had a 30 minute conversation with the DP and the AD. No shot list, no storyboards. It was that conversation that they figured out this is what we're trying to go for in the day. Mm. What, one last thing is the ball grab was Gene Hackman's idea. <laughs> of course it was. But and even to more specifically, you know, how the, whoever came up with the idea of Rooker turning because it's so in character. Yeah, yeah. Rooker turning his chair backwards to get in the guy's face. I right. mean, who turns their chair backwards, you know, <laughs> as opposed to just put it down normal sitting right down next to him? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and one, one of the things that happens is great is that he also turns to the deputy and goes, how about you, deputy? And he pulls his jacket back just a little. Is it gun just for show? Or do you get to shoot people once in a while? So while holding one guy by the balls, he's also reaching over for his gun yeah. going, you got something to say about this? Right. right. Um, and you're right. I, I 100% agree, too. This is the turning point of the movie. Thanks for the beer. So, and since we're saying this is really the turning point of the film, I think it's also a perfect time to end part one of our exploration of Mississippi burning. Uh, as always, uh, you can find us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for the cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or YouTube or Stitcher. Please leave your reviews on iTunes. Please rate us on Spotify. If you have comments, you can leave them on YouTube. You could support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can buy Mississippi burning and every other movie we've ever reviewed or stream them from Amazon Prime at cinephiles.net. And I really, really want to thank David McKenna for coming on the show. This has been an absolutely amazing conversation so far. 
And uh, David, if people, I don't know if you're a social media guy, if people wanted to reach you on social media, how would they uh, do that? Well, I just got an Instagram account. Um, Congratulations. So I'm very happy about that. And uh, you go to David McKenna Screenwriter and uh, follow me. I'm starting to post some cool stuff from the movie Embattled and uh, and uh, I'm learning how to do stuff from my kids. So it's great. Um, and Embattled is available on, you said, on Apple TV. It's on Amazon Prime and on, uh, what was the, I think there was other somewhere else. It was a- Voodoo. And on Voodoo. So Voodoo. definitely check that out. Um, I can't wait to, I haven't watched it yet. I can't wait to check it out. Um, as always, if people want to reach me, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris, on Instagram at SR Morris one. John, how about you? You can always reach me at the Roka says on Twitter and on Instagram. And Hey, if you want to give a chance to take a look at the content I do on my YouTube channel, go to youtube.com slash John Roka says and see all the stuff we got going on there from film, entertainment, politics, and sports. We got you covered for everything on that channel. And I think uh, we are going to be back next week to continue this exploration with our special guest, David McKenna of Mississippi Burning, right here on The Cinephiles. <laughs>